Thanks, Chris. Well, Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a series of parables, uh, short stories that were brought about by a situation where the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and complaining that sinners were flocking to Jesus to come and see him and to come and hear him. Jesus tells these stories to counter the hardness of their hearts at the sight of seeing so many and so many unworthy people in in the Pharisees' perspective coming to him in repentance and faith. At the heart of these stories is a recurring theme of lostness, something that was once lost but is now found. The lost sheep found by the shepherd, the lost coin found by the woman, and finally a story about a lost son. And it's a story commonly known as the prodigal son because it speaks of his extravagance. Now that's what prodigal means, extravagance. He is extravagant in his wastefulness. But it's also a story of the prodigal father. He is extravagant, but extravagant in his grace. And the story goes that a a man had two sons and one of his sons asked for his inheritance. But since the father was still alive, it was the equivalent of saying to his father, I wish you were dead. After receiving his inheritance, the son proceeds to waste all his money on debauched and sensual living before hitting rock bottom. And in this sense of despair, he's brought to his need for repentance to come back to the Father, to plead for his mercy and and willing to come back simply as a servant, not as a son. As he crosses the, the rise to his family property, his father, who's been diligently keeping watch, he sees his son and he rushes to greet him. The son makes his confession but is met by the father's forgiveness and love and the son is reconciled to the father and a great party ensues. And it points to the love of God in welcoming formerly lost sinners into his family. The Pharisees derided and ridiculed how Jesus was acting, but it was an exact imitation of his father in heaven. Whoever cries out for the mercy of God repenting of their sins and trusting in in Christ as Lord and Saviour, will be saved. There is no people group excluded from this call. The gospel invitation goes out to all and all who are enabled uh, enabled to respond by the saving grace of God, they will come. The extravagant waste of the lost son is a picture of sinfulness. Every single human being has been made in God's image and likeness and yet because of Adam's sin we've all been born with a sinful nature born as sinners and born to sin we turn our backs on God in rebellion but God in his grace acted to redeem his chosen people through the work of Christ on the cross and God will draw his elect to Christ through the word and by the spirit but our salvation is, is not simply the end of the story. Believers are united to Christ and will be conformed to the image of Christ and fully glorified like Christ at his return. The, the difference Christ makes in our lives is absolutely astounding. Now over the last couple of months, we've been studying this difference the difference Christ makes in our lives from the book of Titus. 
This letter by the Apostle Paul, as we know, explains very clearly that salvation is by the grace of God alone. And yet, his grace continues to abound in his people as he sanctifies them and as he grows them in godliness, in a life that is pleasing to him. In Titus chapter 2, Paul outlines the standards of godliness for the different ages and genders in the church. And this is what the grace of God at work in a believer's life achieves. Yet godliness, living a life that's pleasing to God, is not simply something that that God zaps a person with and then they're, they're godly, but he calls upon them to strive for godliness, working with and by his grace for his glory. Now, one aspect of godliness that's common for both males and females, young and old, in this section is the characteristic of self-control. What we see is that a result of God's grace is a transition out of the extravagant living of the sinful life and into a life that's moderated by God, a life that is lived in honour to Christ, a life that is enabled by the Holy Spirit, who indwells each believer. Well, today we come to look at the standard of godliness for younger men, those men of marriageable age up to about 60 years old. Now, interestingly, Paul directs Titus to teach them this one thing, to be self-controlled. It's a hugely important thing. But part of his teaching, uh, this is also by way of example. And so there is much also given to Titus to set before the younger men and the wider church aspects that any man in leadership should be seeking to follow. Now, we spent three weeks going through the standard of godliness for younger women, but we're only going to spend today on the standard of godliness for younger men. And the reason for that is quite simple. Uh, It's that there's nothing in our passage this morning that brings with it such immediate intensity as for some of the things that Paul listed for younger women. Uh, There were things listed in those verses for younger women that in our culture today, and even within most churches, are considered highly controversial. So we needed time to address those with care. Now we could have merely highlighted them, kind of coughed and moved on, Uh, But with the world we live in today, I think it's important to bring clarity and light wherever we can on these matters. But while the words in our passage this morning may not immediately set up a, a contentious response, make no mistake, they are still nonetheless countercultural to our age. Our society has such skewed views of what true manhood is. And of course, we know the reason for this is sin. Only when we redirect our thoughts according to God's word, and only as the Holy Spirit illuminates the meaning of the text to our minds and helps us apply that in our lives, will we be able to grasp what it is to be a man, and more importantly, what it means to be a man of God. So if you haven't already, then please turn with me to Titus chapter 2, and we're just going to read through verses 6 to 8. Words directed to the younger man and to Titus. He says this, Likewise, 
Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Well, as Paul lays out the standard of godliness for younger men, he begins with a plea for godliness, and that plea is the need for self-control. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Titus is called to exhort them, to appeal, to beg, to plead with the younger men to be self-controlled. While the older women are the ones who are to encourage and guide the younger women in godliness, it's the job of Titus and indeed the other elders and the other men within the church to urge the younger men to strive for godliness and specifically in the realm of self-control. Now, the word here means to have a sound, godly perspective. In Galatians 5.23, self-control was listed as a fruit of the Spirit. The word translated there means having mastery over oneself in the power of the Holy Spirit. By contrast, what Paul's advocating for in Titus 2 verse 6 is not mastery, but moderation. He's saying that young men should have a sound, godly perspective that drives their lives. They're not to be driven by sin, but by the Spirit. They view things from God's perspective. This is what it means to to moderate their lives. This, the Spirit at work in their lives, is what moderates and regulates them. Now, it's the same characteristic that has been directly called upon for older men and younger women. And since Older women are called to pass on a sound, godly perspective to the younger women. By implication, it's laid before them as well. Paul reiterates this is a characteristic that should govern the whole church when he says in verses 11 to 12, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, that is, all kinds of people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So the whole church is called to live with a sound, godly perspective. And it's by God's grace at work in us through the Holy Spirit that we are empowered and instructed to do so. The believers in Crete uh, had been so easily deceived by the false teaching because they'd failed to carefully cultivate a sound, godly perspective on life. They'd not trusted in what Paul and Titus had taught them about faith and godliness, but had rather begun to allow the voice of the world to adjust and then corrupt their thinking. So in chapter 2, Paul is resetting the foundation. He's showing that a mark of godliness is to see things from God's perspective. It's to love the things that God loves. It's to hate the things that God hates. And to allow God's word to inform and direct our paths. This self-control, this sound, godly perspective is to encompass every area of a young man's life. If we look at verse 7, we see the phrase, in all respects. Which, as it reads, is that Titus is to show himself in all respects to be an example of good works. However, many commentators believe that the 
the phrase should properly be connected to the end of verse 6. So that we should read, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled in all respects. Paul is calling for a complete and comprehensive godly perspective. Younger men are not to think that they can devote certain areas of their lives to God and keep other areas to themselves. They cannot compartmentalize their faith that way. When they confess Christ as Lord, he is to be Lord over their whole lives. And that's true for every believer. But it's spelled out here for younger men. A sound godly perspective is to affect a man's view on everything concerning his faith and life. Now, we should note that self-control is not truly the only thing set out for younger men because from verses 7 to 8, they'll have the example of Titus to follow. And so by implication, what is said for Titus are things called upon for the younger men as well. However, we should ask, why is there only one direct aspect? Well, firstly, it's because of the sheer importance of it. But secondly, the only group that's listed after younger men are servants and slaves. And this group would include both men and women. So the instructions for younger men are the last of the age and gender specific comments. This means that younger men can gauge what is required of them with consideration of all that's come before. And that certainly isn't limited to what's said in chapter 2 alone but to all that's said in chapter 1 as well. But if we just limit ourselves for the sake of time to focus in on chapter 2, we note that a, a sound godly perspective recognises from verse 1 that godliness is a necessary byproduct of the truth of the gospel. A man who has cried out for God to have mercy on his sinful life, a man who has been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiven and declared righteous solely by the work of Christ, will, by the power of God's continued grace in his life, strive for godliness, strive to live a life that is pleasing to God. And of course, he knows that he can only grow in godliness through the regular study of God's word, which is the sufficient provision of all we need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. Having a, a sound, godly perspective helps a younger man know the characteristics that God wants him to develop. For God has laid out the standard of godliness for older men. In verse 2, where they're told to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. There it is again. Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. By the grace of God, He's blessed us with clear markers of what it means to live in Christ. Moreover, a sound godly perspective will help a younger man know what it is to be a man of God as he looks at what is set out for, young, for women of God. If women are to be reverent in behavior, then a man of God will not seek to lead women into irreverent behavior, but will instead seek to treat them with respect and dignity. He'll also not seek to involve himself with women who do behave irreverently. If he seeks a romantic relationship, he will only seek a woman who is a Christian, uh, who has been saved by Christ, because only Christians have the gift of the Holy Spirit 
and are empowered to live for Christ in true godliness. If he does marry, a a younger man knows that if his wife is to love him and submit to him as her head, then he will do everything in the power of the Spirit to be someone whom she would be willing to submit to. Uh, He will seek to lead her in sacrificial, life-giving love like Christ loves and leads the church. Connected to this is the fact that since the wife is called to be working at home, that her priority is to be looking after the home and the family, that he would recognise the necessity of him being the provider for his wife and family. That if she is to live in godliness, it means that he cannot be a slacker, nor can he be demanding upon her to do more than what she's either capable of or called to do. Developing a godly perspective is important from the moment you are saved from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. So for teenagers or for parents of teenagers, you need to remove from your thinking any notion that godliness can wait. Uh, What you do today will have an impact upon what happens tomorrow. If you want to have a good marriage in the future, or if you want your children to have a good marriage in the future, it starts now. It starts by getting your thinking in line with God's perspective. You want to be ready to lead a family? Then start preparing today. You don't want to wait until you become a husband to think, okay, now I'm ready to start thinking about how to be a godly husband. Now, Paul is calling the young men in the church to be self-controlled in all respects, to have a sound godly perspective. And so to the women, would you not love to be in a community filled with men who, who think the thoughts of God, who are passionate about the things of God, who are sincere in their service to God, who are mature in their faith, and whose godly behavior stems from a clear understanding of what God has graciously done to save them in Christ. And what God is graciously continuing to do in them through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So if that is a picture that looks good to you, then pray for the younger men. Pray for them. And for the older men, get to know the younger men. Get alongside them, urge them, plead with them to develop an outlook on life that's regulated by God's word. Now, although it's not mentioned in the text, one question that relates to Paul's statements concerning younger men, a question that we as the elders have been wrestling with for a while now, is what point does a boy become a man? We live in a society where what is considered marriageable age is far higher than what it was in the first century. And so one of the the reasons to ponder the question about when a boy becomes a man is specifically in relation to when it becomes unsuitable for a woman to have teaching authority over a young man. This is certainly a pertinent question as one thinks about the structure of of youth group, for instance. Well, the Bible emphasises the importance and the responsibility a woman has in teaching her children, whether they be boys or girls. And since the church is the household of God, We can also see the immense value of boys and girls being edified by their spiritual parents, other men and women in the church. And this is done informally in fellowship and formally in in specified ministries like Sunday school. But what happens when boys get older? What about teenagers? When does a boy become a man? Well, there are three aspects in which this question might be viewed. 
The first is age. There are several places in the Old Testament where the age at which a person is counted in the national Israelite census is listed as 20 years old. And so that seems to be a significant reference point. The second uh, uh, aspect is, is physicality. Uh, puberty is a, a clear transition uh, from boys and girls becoming men and women. Now, this is far more subjective than simply reaching a certain age because not everybody physically develops at the same time. But the third aspect, and probably the most important, is maturity. Now, think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, where he said, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So how do you tell if a boy is a man? Well, he speaks like a man. He thinks like a man. He reasons like a man. He's given up childish ways. So if a person is still under the authority of his mother and father, uh, if he's not living in a manner that reflects his independence and maturity as a man, then there isn't a problem. In fact, we should encourage the spiritual mothers in the church to be involved in teaching him as well. As a church, we should, of course, be giving every opportunity for our boys to be influenced and trained by godly men, just as much as having our girls influenced and trained by godly women. But we also want to emphasise the value uh, that boys and teenagers receive in having the encouragement of godly older women in their lives too, both in teaching and by example. Now that leads us into what Paul says next. For while part of what Titus was to do was to plead for godliness, it was just as important for him to serve as a picture of godliness. If younger men are to grow in godliness, then they need good examples to follow. Now, what's stated for Titus in verses 7 to 8 is also stated for younger men by implication. Uh, And it's also a clear command for the leaders in the church who may also happen to be younger men like Titus. This picture of godliness can be summarised by the importance of deeds and the importance of demeanour. It matters what is done and it matters how it is done. While the world may say that the ends justify the means, the Bible says something decidedly different. So we see the importance of deeds, which is highlighted in verse 7. Paul says to Titus, show yourself to be a model of good works. Now, a model is an example. Titus is to live his life as a pattern in which other younger men are to follow. He is to be there as something for the younger men to imitate. What Paul is advocating for Titus is what Paul did uh, throughout the churches himself. In Philippians 3, verse 17, Paul declared, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The blessing of the church is that when a person is brought into Christ's body by God's grace through faith in Christ, they are brought into a community of redeemed sinners who have been serving God for much longer. There are people who have grown maturely in their faith and are able to provide a pattern for new Christians to follow. In his words to Titus, Paul is focusing on one particular aspect where example is needed. 
He says, show yourself to be a model of good works. Now, good works is a common theme that runs throughout the letter of Titus. And Titus was to be an example of good works so that the church would see how to devote themselves to good works. Once again, these good works are the result of a spirit-filled life. Many people outside of the church do what might be called good works. However, these are not done for the glory of God. Only in Christ can we do things that are considered good before God. As Isaiah says in chapter 64, verse 6, All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. This is what God thinks of a sinner's good works. But when a sinner is redeemed through faith in Christ, it's another story. The Bible is filled with clear mandates of what good works we are to fulfill and also wonderful examples and models of people to follow. Uh, We need look no further than the letter to Titus to see what Paul means by good works. The whole book is filled with practical examples of what it looks like for the church of Christ to serve God in good works. But clearly, the standards of godliness listed in chapter 2 are a base starting point. This is what it looks like for men and women of all ages to serve God in good works. This is what it means to follow God first and foremost as a man or a woman of God. As we've studied through this chapter, I've mentioned several times that the words are truly countercultural. For starters, there is an affirmation of a clear distinction between men and women, which does not sit well in a time where our society has moved beyond feminism and into transgenderism. But there is still a decidedly strong feminist streak in our culture that even pervades our churches, an ideology that seeks to dispel any notion that there are divinely ordained functional differences between men and women. I've mentioned John Piper uh, well-known U.S. theologian and pastor. I mentioned him a couple of times um, as someone who is a faithful biblical teacher who's tried to show that these differences matter. They matter to God and they should matter to us. He's lamented that in all their strides to eliminate the God-given differences between men and women, um, that the egalitarian m- movement or the evangelical feminist movement, whatever you want to call it, has failed to answer one simple question. What does it mean to be a man or a woman of God? And he makes it intensely practical when he asks, what do you tell your eight-year-old son when they ask you, Dada, what does it mean to be a man of God? And you might start listing some of the fruit of the Spirit. Well, it means to be loving, joyous, peaceful, patient, etc., The child replies, no, I don't mean what it is to be a Christian. I mean, what does it mean to be a man of God as opposed to a woman of God? Now, Piper has stated that in all of his reading of of Christian egalitarian authors, he's never come across an adequate answer for that. God has made mankind as men and women, both genders, equally bearing God's image, and yet at the same time, two different genders and that's got to mean something and if we try and flatten out the differences then we all lose out 
Because both men and women are not encouraged to truly and fully be who God has created them to be and to do the good works that God has called them into in Christ. So that's the importance of deeds. Next, Paul emphasizes the importance of demeanor. That is, the manner and the conduct of Titus. Paul focuses his attention on Titus's teaching ministry, but here the concern is not on what Titus says so much as how Titus says it. Both aspects are crucial, but here Paul dr- drills down on the latter. So he brings out several aspects that Titus needs to be aware of. Firstly, he says, in your teaching show integrity. Now the word translated as integrity means something lacking uh, the very capacity to decay. We can see that practically when we we think about a sailor checking the the integrity of a ship's hull. Uh, He checks it to make sure there are no cracks or flaws. If the integrity of the hull is damaged, then it's possibly going to sink when he takes it out onto the water. To have integrity is to have moral character that's indestructible or incorruptible. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be corrupted. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 42, Paul speaks about the resurrection of believers, saying about the believer's body that it is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It's the same word there. At the resurrection, our bodies will be incorruptible. They will have integrity. Integrity is a truly valuable commodity. We're told in Proverbs 10 verse 9, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. And similarly in Proverbs 28, 18, that whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. To walk with integrity is to ensure that there are no gaps in our attitude or our action, that there are no flaws, no cracks that will enable the water to get in and sink us. It means that we are above reproach in every area of our lives. If we think specifically about what Paul is saying to Titus, it's that his teaching must be carried out with integrity. Uh, There must certainly not, as, as far as he can discern, be any flaws in what he says doctrinally. Moreover, no flaws in the way that he says it, including the underlying motivations for saying it as well. In the first chapter of Paul's first letter to Timothy, he opened by reiterating Timothy's task of silencing the false teachers. Uh, But then in verse 5, he said, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So whether it is commending truth or countering falsehood, the underlying motivation is to see people respond to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and whose lives exhibit love as a result of that. So for Titus, he shows integrity in his teaching by the manner he speaks, by the motivations that undergird what he says, and also by the steadfast preaching which addresses every aspect of God's word. See, sometimes we're guilty of the sins of commission, that is what we say or do, 
Now, other times we're guilty of the sins of omission. That is what we don't say or what we don't do. And so to act with integrity means we are concerned with both of these matters. We should be very aware uh, that when we seek to faithfully proclaim God's word, wherever that may be, it's actually a dangerous weapon we are wielding. For as the writer of Hebrews declares, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so Paul was giving fair warning to Titus of the temptation to avoid preaching on difficult matters uh, if he came across opposition. Opposition that would come when God's word started piercing people's hearts. But as Paul said to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. And what does that mean? When it's easy and when it's hard, when when people want to hear and when they don't. To avoid preaching or speaking about certain texts because of the reaction that uh, that might be raised against us is to show a complete lack of integrity. You see, the word exposes where people are at. And when they react, when they realize they've been cornered by the word, well, to use a football expression, there can be a tendency to change tact and go for the player, not the ball. Um, I was once at a church where I'd been preaching on the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and people were getting riled up and some were leaving because they didn't think people should have to believe that Jesus had been physically raised from the dead for them to be saved. Now, never mind the fact that the Bible emphatically states that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Never mind that little verse. So instead of sitting down and talking these things through, uh, the rumour mill started up production. Someone had found out that Crystal's maiden name was Trimboli, uh, which also happens to be a well-known Italian crime family name. So one of the things making its way around was that Crystal and I were not worried that that people were leaving the church and taking their offering with them because we were being funded by the mafia. Now, you might say, well, that just sounds stupid. Who on earth is going to believe that? But rationality is often the first victim. Integrity means you keep seeking to trust God and do good no matter what the circumstances around you, no matter how others may be responding to you, no matter if anyone is watching or not. Well, the next aspect of Titus's demeanour is a call for dignity. This characteristic was set out for older men back in verse 2. It means weighty. It means to have gravity and true seriousness. Now, this doesn't mean that a person is devoid of feeling, uh, that by acting with dignity means there's no joy or they can't even have a laugh. No, it means that a dignified person will not be concerned with trivial matters, but rather with matters of substance. So when Paul tells Titus that he is to be dignified in his teaching, he means that everything about Titus was to be a serious example to others. He was to be a man that others would respect. He was to be someone uh, others knew they could take serious matters to and they could look to him for wise counsel and guidance. If Titus wanted people to listen, he was to act with reverence himself. Now that's certainly countercultural to our day. 
To teach younger men to be dignified is almost offensive. Particularly in Australia, the land of the tall poppy syndrome, uh, to give an impression of acting with class or respect is to invite the big guns out to come and destroy it immediately. Now, to be sure, Paul was not calling Titus and by extension younger men to, to walk around looking down their noses at people. But that is what people falsely perceive when younger men try to live to God's standards. But maturity in Christ is what all Christians are to aim for. Paul says in Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity is the aim for all Christians and especially for the younger men. To be dignified, to be known as someone who can deal with serious and heavy matters, things of substance and importance... That's what was called for Titus and what younger men are to follow. See, our culture has it backwards today. Men want to act as teenagers instead of training teenagers to act like men. And so it's time to put aside childish behaviour and to act with dignity that befits men of God. Being a Christian is a joyous business, but it's also a serious business. There's much at stake in the gospel. We are to be ambassadors for Christ And ambassadors don't goof around. They work hard at things that count. And they are known as people who act with dignity. The last aspect of demeanour Paul stresses for Titus is that he is to have sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now we've already come across the word sound throughout this letter. It means uh, healthy. In verse 1, Titus received the charge to watch the content of his words and and now he is receiving the charge uh, to watch the conduct of his words. When we were discussing the importance of kindness for younger women uh, last last week, uh, we said that it's not merely the topic that's important, but the tone in which it's delivered. How we speak to people can be just as important as what we say to people. That's why in Ephesians 4 verse 15, Paul stresses the necessity of speaking the truth in love. Truth must be delivered in love, otherwise it will be very difficult for people to receive it. But not only that, if we don't speak the truth in love, Paul makes the point to Titus that we are liable to be condemned. If if our walk does not match our talk, we're going to find ourselves in all sorts of strife. We must speak soundly, we must speak with wisdom and grace. Now, that applies to every Christian. But for Titus, it was imperative, and it's a characteristic that should be prevalent in younger men. Younger men, you are not left in the dark as to what God calls you into. And for those men who serve in leadership capacities, there's a clear mandate to ensure that our lives are godly examples for others to follow. Now, there are multiple reasons given throughout the Scriptures for why Christians should strive for godliness. But Paul gives one purpose at the end of verse 8. And that is, it is needed to silence opponents. Why should Titus, why should men strive for godliness? So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Last week, we saw a similar reason given for younger Christian women to strive for godliness. And next time we meet, Uh, We'll see another one given when Paul speaks about Christian servants. The way we live affects the things we say. 
Titus faced many opponents in his work on Crete. Many people uh, scrutinizing his every move, just looking for the moment that he did or said something out of place so that they could discredit his ministry. There was opposition from the false teachers and there was opposition from within the church by those who'd been deceived by the false teachers. And really that's not all that different from the world we live in today, isn't it? The, the church is under a microscope from society and even within uh, the church uh, we find that as well that's why paul stressed so firmly to titus of his own need for godliness he wasn't to give anyone an inch where they could tear down his ministry and it wasn't just his own ministry either because titus's actions were directly tied to the apostle paul and so if titus behaved badly then it would reflect badly on Paul and discredit the ministries that Paul had established in other parts of the land. Christian leaders need to recognise that the consequences of their actions, for good or for ill, will always impact more than just themselves. And so it's a warning to stand in godliness. But it's not a call for perfectionism. Even Paul faced the immense struggle of indwelling sin that that he speaks about in Romans 7. Paul is not expecting that Titus or any other leader for that matter will never sin again. But a godly leader, if he knows he has sinned upon recognize it, will immediately repent before God and seek his forgiveness in Christ. And then immediately go and find any uh, person that he sinned against and repent and seek their forgiveness as well. Now that's the clear teaching that Jesus lays out for the church in Matthew 5. It's the way of reconciliation expected of all believers. And godly leaders are to lead the way in this matter just as much as in any other matter. Now does that mean people won't try and condemn us anyway, even if we haven't done anything wrong? Well, of course not. We know that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Sometimes people will act on a misunderstanding. Sometimes people will have darker motives than that. But either way, we read in places like 1 Peter 3, verses 15 to 17, that in speaking to others about the gospel, we are to do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So either the truth will come out and will be vindicated for actions, or for the glory of Christ we must endure false accusations, knowing that vindication will happen when Christ returns in glory to judge the world with justice and righteousness. Now while all that needs to be said, let us not in any way seem to be softening what Paul is saying here. Godliness matters. It matters because of who we belong to. It matters because believers belong to God through the saving work of Christ applied by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It's by grace that sinners are redeemed and brought into God's household and it's by grace that they are enabled to live as those who are members of God's household. That's a truth that younger men need to understand and it's a truth that the whole church needs to recognise and abide in as well. 
So may God grant us his grace to do just that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your revelation. We thank you that we are not left in the dark as to what you call us to. We thank you that we've been saved by grace and we've been saved into your family solely by the work of Christ and faith in him, faith that was enabled by your grace for us. Father, we thank you for all the things that we've been coming to understand through these standards of godliness in chapter 2 of Titus. Father, we pray that you would convict us, that you would help us to understand um, the importance of these things because this is what it means to be in Christ. This is what it means to be a child of God. But Father, we recognise that you do not call us to do anything that you do not enable us to do by your grace. Father, we pray particularly for the younger men in our congregation. Pray that you would help uh, them to be self-controlled, that they would be able to develop sound, godly perspective, to be able to think your thoughts after you, to be able to follow the example of Christ. And as... Younger men do this as we, all the ages and genders within the church continue to seek to strive in godliness. May this be a place where love of Christ is felt and known and where the gospel goes out into this world of lost sinners. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. In your son's name we pray. Amen.